You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Heavenly Father, you are holy, holy, holy. And the earth is filled with your glory. You are good and you are kind. Oh Lord, you have been so loving towards us and towards your church. You've saved us, oh God. And Lord, now we ask that you would be here. You say in your word, you say, and behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. And so God, we know that this is true because you have said it. And so Lord, be with us now and teach us from your word. Lord, illuminate through your Holy Spirit the scriptures and apply it to our hearts. Change us, oh God. Change us to be more like Jesus Christ. This is our desire. We pray all this in the mighty name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may take your seats. Go ahead and open up your Bibles uh, to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We are going to be in verses 7 to 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, 7 to 11. And I'm going to uh, just read this passage over us now. 1 Peter chapter 4, 7 to 11 says this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, the end of all things is at hand. And here is the question for us today. The end of all things is at hand. How are you going to live your life? The end of all things is at hand. What are you going to do? Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever heard doomsday predictions and then thought, hey, what am I going to get done before the end of the world comes around? Maybe we have a bucket list or a couple things we want to get done, or I don't know what your plans would be. Maybe uh, dig a bunker 20 feet under your uh, backyard and, and live in a concrete box for the rest of your life. Not sure. But I think if we did a quick survey of our society at large, we can get a good idea of what people do when they're told the end of all things is at hand. So the last 20 years, maybe this would surprise you or remind you, 20 years ago today was 1999. Oh yeah, you remember this? All right, Y2K right around the corner, right? Some of you are like, what are you talking about? What's Y2K? I was born in 2001. Well, in 1999, they told us that in 2000, because the computers were switching over to this new millennium, the, all the computers were going to shut down. We'd have no food. We would have no water. We would have no lights and everything. And you drive around town and people's front yards were filled with chopped up wood for fuel for years and water bottles like you couldn't imagine. I mean, if you went to the grocery store, you could not get canned corn if the, your life depended on it because it was bought up. You were hoping to make stew that day. You couldn't. All right. 
everything was gone. People were, were, were really worried about this. In fact, some people even wrote some books. One guy wrote a book, I think it came out 20 years ago, 101, 101 Ways to Survive the Y2K Crisis. I don't think he's selling many copies anymore. I wonder if 101 was just do nothing because nothing happened. How about this a little bit more recently um, in 2012? You remember this one? This was a fun one, right? They told us that because of a Mayan calendar written hundreds and thousands of years ago, that on December 21st, 2012, surely is the end of the world. The end of all things is at hand on December 21st, 2012, and people were making documentaries, and there was people with tinfoil hats on saying all bunch of nonsense, and, then, and we would say to them, oh, that's crazy, that's crazy, but then on our own time, we'd be like, is it true? Is it true? Could it be true? Is this real? What should I do? Am I going to see Christmas this year? And even the weather network was sort of getting up on it, and they were giving the forecast, <laughs> and... Uh, you know, 45, 40, 45, and then 1250, bring your sunscreen. It's going to be a hot one on Friday, December 21st, 2012. More recently, more recently, I've heard even in the last couple of months that uh, from politicians, nonetheless, um, they always have some things to say, um, that if we don't clean up our act with the environment because of global warming, the end of the world's 2030. It's coming. 2030 is your last days, so vote for me and that'll solve the problem, Right? That's always the solution. Vote for me. I think Costco's trying to capitalize on this a little bit. They've offered for $8,500 uh, food for one year for four people. So if you want to feed your family, um, you'll be good. But just like at every time I cash out at Costco, if you get the executive membership, you get 3% back. So it's, it's, it's worth it. It's worth it. Everyone's trying to get a piece of the pie. Um, but the Bible here in, in, in 1 Peter uh, He's not giving some unconfirmed or sort of lofty idea that should cause alarm. You see, when, when the world gives a doomsday prediction, and there have been many throughout history, everyone goes into panic mode. They fear. They buy up all of this stuff from Costco. They empty the shelves. They put firewood in their front lawn. They're scared because of the end, the end of all things. But when the Bible tells us that the end of all things is at hand for the believer in Jesus Christ, it doesn't lead us to fear. It actually should be an encouragement. The end of all things is at hand, and this should encourage us. Why? Because if we are believers in Jesus Christ, we know that our king is coming back. And when our king comes back, all things will be made new. This should be encouraging to us. And so the question remains, the end of all things is at hand. How will we live how will we live knowing this truth? I have a little graph uh, chart here for us today to hopefully explain a little bit about what Peter's talking about, okay? So you see this uh, horizontal, two horizontal lines connected by a vertical line. The first horizontal line, the lower one, is this age. This is what we're living in right now. It's a timeline. And you can see creation and fall there at the beginning. And then we've been living through this age. And the new age, the age that is to come, the hope of every believer, what we're looking forward to, the kingdom of God coming to us in, in all fulfillment will come when Christ returns. And there's the resurrection of the dead. And right now, to be even more specific, the time that we're living in is in this little dotted line area that uh, is from Christ's birth, his death, his resurrection and ascension. When that happened, we've entered into this kind of semi-quasi period in this age that we could call the almost but not yet. 
The work of Christ has been done. It's, it is finished. He's, he's completed it on the cross, and now we look forward to his return, and so we're in this almost but not yet time period. And the New Testament refers to this period of time that we are in, believers, church, that we are in today, that we are in right now. It calls it a few different things. Our text today calls it the end. That's 1 Peter 4, 7. 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 20 calls it the last times that we're in right now. 1 John 2.18 calls it the last hour. We're in the last hour. He's coming back soon. And Acts 12.17 calls it the last days. We're living in the last times, the last hour, the last times, the end, the end of all things is at hand. This is where we are. Christ is coming back soon. A lot of us want to know exactly when that's going to be. But even Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, 36, he says, but concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. Only the father knows when that day is. But I can tell you this, the end of all things is at hand. The progress of redemption, the story of redemption that Christ has come and we're awaiting his return, it has happened. And you might say, hey, Daniel, Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago. Like, what's going on? You thought, I thought he said the end of all things is at hand. It's been 2,000 years. A little bit of history has passed us by here. When is Christ returning? Shouldn't have, been it, shouldn't have it happened by now? Well, if you're skeptical, you're not the first to be skeptical. Even in the first century, people were razzing Peter about this, and he gave an answer in his second letter. If you want to flip over a couple pages to 2 Peter chapter 3, in verse 4, and then 8 to 10, he gives an answer to the skeptics. He says this in verse 4. He says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. He's saying, look, nothing's changed. You said this end of all things is at hand, but the sun rises, the sun goes down, I go to work, nothing's changing. It's just life keeps going on. And then he answers them in verse 8 and says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. You see, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. So really... We've gotten about two days into this in God's economy of time. He's not slow as some count slowness, but he is patient towards us. And we, we pray, oh Lord Jesus, come, come Lord Jesus, come. But in, in some respects here, Peter is saying, look, be thankful that the Lord hasn't come yet because there's still work to do. The end of all things is at hand, but good thing he didn't come back a hundred years ago or none of us would be saved. The end of all things is at hand. How will you live your life? Christ is coming back and he will come back like a thief. So we must be prepared. We must be prepared in this end of all things is at hand, this end times. We need a survival guide, don't we? What should we do? This emergency that we're in. And so that leads us to our four points for today. To survive the end times, I need to stay calm and pray. To survive the end times, I need to stay calm and pray. 
Look at verse 7 again. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I love how quickly Peter moves from the end of all things is at hand to therefore. This is what you do. The end of all things is at hand. A couple of words. He doesn't spend much time there. Why? Because for the believer in Jesus Christ, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, you believe. You believe that Jesus is coming back. You know that he's coming back. It's affirmed on your heart. And so the end of all things at hand, really all believers should say, yes, I know. Yes, I know. He is coming back. That is so true. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So here's the million-dollar question. How can I be self-controlled and sober-minded? How can I be self-controlled and sober-minded? Short answer, short answer. Be filled with the Spirit of God. Be filled with the Spirit of God. As you're filled with the Spirit of God, you will have the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit includes self-control. Are you filled with the Spirit of God. Longer answer, as a spirit-filled believer in Jesus, I need to prepare myself for the moment of emergency that I am in. How do we do that? How do we prepare ourselves for this emergency that Jesus Christ is coming back at any moment and my life needs to be dedicated to him? How do I prepare myself for this? We're in a state of this emergency that there's this thing coming there's no time for complacency or selfish living. We must make being self-controlled and sober-minded, we must make that the instinct we have when walking through this life. Have you ever been in a 911 emergency situation before? It's pretty scary. And you might be able to think ahead to it a little bit, like, how would I act if this terrible thing happened or something happened? And, and, uh, but then when the moment comes... It's like adrenaline's pumping and, 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 and you panic. And some people just freeze in the moment and don't know what to do. And some people are running around and causing more harm than good. That's why we have these like first aid training days at, at work. You've ever had one of these, right? We had one here. God bless the guy who, who let it and put up with us for a day. But they, they put like a plastic doll down on the floor and around all your colleagues, you have to walk into the situation and say all these kind of what sound ridiculous things out loud, right? We've all been through this, right? And it's like, I'm coming in. I'm walking around the body. I'm checking for glass and gas and wires. And everyone's like chuckling, but then you know it's their turn soon. So, and then you got to check, is the person breathing? And then you got to say it out loud. How many breaths? Can you hear me, sir? You ask someone, would you please call 911? You say all these things out loud. You, you start compressions. You get the defibrillator, the AED, and you, and, you, and you see if you need to use that. You wait for the... You're preparing yourself for a state of emergency because the reality is, is if that really happened in life and we had no training, we would panic. So we must be sober-minded. We must be self-controlled. You ever seen a police officer walk into a situation like that? Calm, collected, cool, looking around, seeing for anything, not, not jumping right to the situation. Is there any other danger? What's happening? Who to call? What to do? Calm, self-controlled. At school, we used to do all these fire drills, right? And all the kids would just like to get out of class for five minutes, but we would walk down and they'd show us where to go and go to the hill, go to the grass, talk to your teacher, tell them you're okay. Preparing ourselves for the emergency. Well, this is the truth for the believer is that the end of all things is at hand. We are in a state of emergency 
It's right here and it's right now. Will you be sober-minded? Will you be self-controlled? This is what we're called to do, to be spirit-filled, to know that the end of all things is at hand and stay calm and pray. Know where you're at. Know that he's coming back. I find it so interesting, and I love this, that Peter goes right from self-controlled, sober-minded to pray, right? You see that? He sort of qualifies why we do this. Why, why Peter, why should I be self-controlled and sober-minded? For the sake of your prayers. You think maybe he would go somewhere else with that, right? Be, be self-controlled and sober-minded so that you don't embarrass yourself in this life, uh, so, that, so that you are a good Christian witness to people, good things, um, so that you, you, you know, your family stays on track. Be sober-minded and self-controlled so that you can do all the good things that you've been called to do. No, that's actually not at all where he goes at all. He says, for the sake of your prayers, for the sake of your prayers. You know why? It's because a self-controlled and sober-minded person understanding, knowing that the Lord is coming back soon, knows that the most important thing they can do is pray. Because all the good work that we will do will come out of prayer. Peter knows this. We need to know this as well. For Peter, the greater work is prayer, and it must continue to be that way for us. I'm so thankful for the emphasis of prayer we have at our church. We have prayer meetings. We pray in every service all the time. In our small groups, we pray. Every meeting we have, prayer. Before everything we do, we pray. Why? Why? Because we need the Lord to do the work. We cannot survive in these end times. We can't survive when everything might be coming to an end, when everything is so critical without prayer. A lot of us think we're very sober-minded and we have lots of self-control because we take a look at our lives and we think, hey, things are pretty good. Things are in order. My family's good. I serve. I, I'm doing all the things I should be doing. But this is the litmus test for if you are sober-minded and have self-control, do you pray? Do you pray? It, it, do you soak everything in prayer? Do you go to the Lord when you're in joy and when you're in sorrow? Do you go to the Lord for direction and help because the sober-minded and self-controlled person will be devoted to prayer? You will be devoted to prayer. The fruit of self-controlled and sober-mindedness is prayer. See, we get so distracted by the world. Even We get distracted by good things too. We get distracted by things that we should be doing that lead us away from prayer. When prayer is the most important work, See, you might have never had a drink of alcohol in your life, but you're not sober because you're drunk on the distractions of this world. Drunk on the distractions of this world and you've forgotten to pray. No, we must be sober-minded, self-controlled, dedicating ourselves to prayer. I must not get distracted. I must not get distracted because the end of all things is at hand. I've got work to do. So to survive the end times, we need to uh, stay calm and pray. We also need to cover everything in love. Cover everything in love. To survive these end times, we need to, as a church, cover everything in love. Look at verse 8. It says this, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. To survive the end times, we must keep loving each other. We have a pretty loving church, I think. 
And praise God, we must keep loving one another earnestly, earnestly. I love this word that he uses here, earnestly. We don't use it too often anymore, but we love each other earnestly. The dictionary defines it this way. Um, Earnestly means to have serious intention or purpose or effort, to be sincerely zealous, showing depth of sincerity of feeling, making it seriously important to demand or to be receiving serious attention, this, this love is a love that is selfless. This love is a giving love, not a receiving love. It's an earnest love that we're seeking to love each other as Christ has loved us. Even when they don't deserve it, we're pouring out love to one another. That's what this love is that Peter is talking about. See, it sounds like earnest, earnestly, it sounds like something maybe we would apply to our jobs or maybe our hobby. I've got to be earnest in my work. I've got to work hard in this way. But no, Peter tells us that we must be passionately, passionately, earnestly seeking to love one another, going out of our way to cover everything in love. See, this isn't just my commandment, and it's not even just the Apostle Peter's commandment. The first to say this was Jesus Jesus made this commandment for us in John 13, 34. Jesus said, A new commandment that I give to you, that you would love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. This is how we are different. Because we have received the love of Christ. See, loving one another in the church is the main and fundamental byproduct of being the church. It's the main and fundamental byproduct of being the church. How, why are we the church? We're the church because God so loved the world that he gave his son. He has saved us. He has loved us. He has sanctified us. He's poured out his love for us. And now we are loved. We're part of the church. And the most fundamental byproduct of being loved is loving one another. Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. You see, the end part of that verse too, he says, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. We can read that and think, oh, wait, is it saying that if we love one another, our sins are forgiven? It's not what it's saying. Um, only God can, can, can forgive our sins. Um, Peter's referencing back to Proverbs uh, 10, verse 12, which says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Wayne Grudem explains this well in one of his commentaries. He says this, speaking of love, he says, the reason for doing so is because love covers a multitude of sins. This is why we love one another. Where love abounds in fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even some large ones are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding and conflicts abound to Satan's perverse delight. I think that's a great summation of what this means. What he's saying is that as we love one another, we, we overlook people's faults. We overlook the sin in their life and we just choose to earnestly and continually pursue them and love them just as Christ has pursued us. And when we don't do that, when we don't have this earnest love for one another, there's quarreling, there's divisiveness, there's suspicion of each other. It divides the church, and who enjoys that the most? Satan. So how do we do this? How do we love one another? What does this look like in our church right now? What does this look like? How do we physically love one another? 
Well, Peter spent much of this letter explaining what God has done for us and how he has loved us. So let's go through a couple of verses throughout the whole book here and and see what God has done for us. In chapter 1, verse 10, it says that he has given us grace. God has given us grace. He's loved us by being gracious to us. He has given us what we don't deserve. He's given us righteousness. He's given us a hope. He's given us eternity with him. He's, He's given us salvation. And we have received so much. And how can we who have received so much grace not be gracious to one another? We can love through being gracious. How about this one? Christ sacrificed himself for us in chapter 1, verse 19. Christ sacrificed himself. Himself. He didn't set up someone else or something else to pay for our sins. No, he he did it himself. He paid the penalty for our sins by dying on the cross. He sacrificed himself, and he who sacrificed himself so much for us, how how can we not live sacrificially for one another? How can we not live? That's what love is as a community of believers, sacrificing ourselves for one another. How about this? In in chapter 2, verse 10, he he has shown mercy to us. He has shown mercy to us. You know that we all deserve hell. We all deserve punishment. But God has wiped that away through Jesus Christ. He's wiped away. He's shown mercy to us. He sees us as sinner, but then he sees us as righteous instead in through Christ. He has shown mercy to us. And how can we who have received so much mercy not be merciful with one another? In 2.21, we learn that Christ also suffered for us. Not only that he was sacrificed, he sacrificed himself, but it wasn't an easy road. He suffered for us. He suffered. He went through so much for our salvation. And how can we not suffer with one another? This is love. This is what true biblical Christian love, rooting from God's love to us, looks like. And lastly, in chapter 3, verse 20, we learn that God has been patient. God has been so patient with me, my goodness, constantly pursuing, even though I sin, even though I fail, constantly pursuing me and loving me and being patient with me and disciplining me and restoring my soul and loving me, how can we not be patient with one another? God has been so patient with all of us. This is why Peter says, above all, he says, above all, love one another, because this is what God has done for us. This is how we should act to one another. Listen, the end of all things is at hand. We must love one another. We don't have time to stir up strife. We don't have time to be divisive. We must love one another with the love of Christ. And because of what Peter says, even in chapter 1, we have an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, which is kept in heaven for you. We must show this love that we have received as well. He continues, so to survive, um, to survive the end times, I need to keep calm and pray. I need to cover everything in love, and then also I need to seek to show hospitality. To survive the end times, I need to seek to show hospitality. Verse 9 says this, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. To survive, we must be hospitable. To survive, we must be hospitable. I think the first two are easier to wrap our heads around, right? 
right? Okay, I get it. Sure, I should be self-controlled and pray. That, okay, signing up for that. Keep reading a little bit. All right, love one another. Hey, I like that concept. What a great community to live in that we love one another. Okay, Peter, what do you got next for me? Show hospitality to one another. Oh, man. I got to invite people into my home. Daniel, keep reading. Without grumbling. Without grumbling. Without grumbling? That's like my favorite part of hospitality. Peter, come on, man. If I'm going to have Peter over, I want to have people over, I at least want to complain about it a little bit. Right? I want, I want to <laughs> complain. No. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. It's like Peter is just speaking directly to me. See, I think we grumble when we think of hospitality, having people in our home often, because we actually have not defined hospitality or Christian hospitality correctly. We often think about what the world thinks hospitality is. They think it's entertaining, right? We talk about this, we speak in this way, we say, oh, we're having some people over, we're entertaining tonight. We're entertaining some people this weekend. It's like, no, 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 no. You want to seek to show hospitality. So what's the difference here? How would we define these things? This is my definition for hospitality and entertaining. See, hospitality is concerned about caring for the people you are hosting. Hospitality is concerned about caring for the people you are hosting. Entertaining, on the other hand, is concerned about what the people you are hosting think about you. Entertaining is concerned about what the people you are hosting think about you. So we can think about it this way. Imagine all of us were going to a dinner and theater, okay? We're all sitting at tables, enjoying a nice meal, and there is a performance going on, okay? So the person on stage who's giving the performance is really concerned about what everyone in the room thinks about them. They want to make sure that their makeup looks good, maybe they're, if they're singing, that their voice is good, if they're acting, that their acting is good, if they're playing an instrument, whatever it may be. They're very concerned about how people are looking at them and what they see. They want them to come back next time. And they want everything to be perfect when the eyes are on them. The hostess, on the other hand, is there to make sure that everyone's comfortable, that everyone is receiving the food that they ordered, that they're, they're loved and they're cared for, that they feel at home. So we don't want to be the entertainer. We want to be like the host. We are not here to impress people. We're here to love people. And there's a big difference there. It's a switch of priorities between the two. Often it's just a heart issue. See, the grumbling comes when we think about the work we have to do to show hospitality, right? We, we think about, oh, I got to get this perfect meal ready, and I know, you know, she's coming over, and she's going to see if my, ch my chicken isn't the juiciest chicken ever, and if, and if my salad isn't a special recipe I got online with the special perfect kind of nuts, I mean, they're going to notice, and if, if the pillows don't match the drapes, I mean, oh, heaven forbid, if someone would see my house without perfectly matching drapes, with all the Pinterest scrolling and HomeSense shopping and HGTV house wanting, we think that without a home looking a certain way or a meal tasting a certain way, we should be embarrassed about it. See, this is entertaining. This isn't hospitality. That's not what hospitality 
is. Hospitality is about knowing the person, loving the person, caring for the person, being invested in the person, not about what they think about you, but how you love them. See, it doesn't take much to be hospitable. It doesn't take much to show hospitality in your home, and this is something that all of us need to practice. I'll tell you a story. One time when um, we were pretty new to the church, it was either my first time or second time uh, preaching, and after the 11, this service, after the 11 o'clock service, um, an older uh, godly couple in the church, spare, spare the moment, just asked us, hey, would you guys like to come for lunch? Are you doing anything? And we're like, sure, we'd love to come. Now, they hadn't spent all night preparing the perfect salad and making sure everything was perfect or anything like that. They're like, okay, that's great. You know what? We'll leave now. We'll pick up some McDonald's and we'll just eat at the table. Like, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And as I was preparing this message, my wife, Mandy, you said, you need to tell this story because we remember that. So much. Why? Because it wasn't about anything else than them showing us love. Them wanting to get to know us and caring for us and wanting to have relationship with, with us and see who we are. That's what hospitality is. It doesn't mean you can't have a nice meal. It just means it's not about that. See, this word though specifically, hospitality, of course it can include having us over each of us, I think, but really it's actually aiming towards non-believers. It's aiming towards people who are outside of the community of Christ and inviting them into our homes. And what a great opportunity. We saw that in the last point, right, to love one another. That's kind of where we love one another, right? But in this hospitality, we open up to our homes to those who do not know the love of Christ. We invite them into our homes to show them what Christian love truly is. Continuing from that verse in, in John, John 13, 34, we saw the commandment of loving one another. In the next verse, Jesus says this in John 13, 35. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Why? Why? How, why, would, why would that make them know? Because it's different. It's different. See, when you invite people into your home, if they're unbelievers, if they, they've never received the love of Christ, they truly have never received or have never known what the, the truest and deepest sense of what love is. They've never experienced it. They've, they haven't experienced what you've experienced in being saved in Jesus Christ. Never. And as you invite them into your home and you show them, not entertaining, not what the world gives, not being concerned about your curtains and the salad, but being concerned about loving them as Christ has loved you, they will see a love they've never seen before. And it's different. It's different. You see, the end of all things is at hand. So show hospitality without grumbling. We have an opportunity to invite people into our homes and show them the love of Christ. We're all called to this. We're all called to this. I would challenge you to invite your neighbor over for dinner and show them the love of Christ. So to survive the end times, I need to stay calm and pray, cover everything in love, seek to show hospitality, and finally, use my gifts to serve. Use my gifts to serve. Let's look at verse 10 and 11. It says this, 
As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, Peter is saying here and would confirm with the rest of the New Testament that every single believer in Jesus Christ has a gift. Upon salvation, you received a spiritual gift. God has made you, like, and I'm talking to the individual here, not the church as a whole. Individually, he has made you specifically individual. He, he has made you with specific gifts that nobody else has. He's made you uniquely and he knows exactly who you are. Every single believer in Jesus Christ has been made uniquely and given a gift. And the purpose of that gift is to serve one another. You need to take this to heart. So many of us get down on ourselves. We think, oh, we don't have this. We don't have that. I'm not good enough or I don't have this. Listen, no, no, no. Christ knew exactly what he was doing when he made you. And he made you, you, specifically, with unique gifts so that you can serve one another in a unique way that nobody else can. And the body of Christ needs you specifically. God has made you who you are so that you can serve others in a unique way. He tells us then, since we have all received a gift, steward those gifts Steward those gifts that we have been given. So what is a steward? A steward is someone who takes someone else's resources, manages them for a time, and then gives them back, hopefully with increase. Managing someone else's resources, and that's exactly the situation we're in right now. God has created you, and the end of all things is at hand, and he has given you a gift. He's given you something to steward, and you are to take that gift, and you are to use it in the way he has instructed you to use it. Your talents, your abilities, your passions, who you are for his glory, to serve one another. And one day he will return, and he'll say, what did you do with what I have given you? We need to use our gifts to serve one another. There's an instruction with the gifts he gave us. And the instructions just say, use it to serve. Not for self, not to promote myself, not to get more of what I want or what I think or what the world is offering, but to serve. This is why God has made you, you. This is why God has put you in this specific point in your life right now with the experiences you have and what you might call limitations. God has called you specifically to serve right now. So let's go on in the verse. Peter divides gifts into two major categories. He says there's speaking and there's serving. So an oral thing and then a uh, action-based thing. He says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. So this is the first section, the speaking. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. I think we can read this verse, and maybe all of you just heard me read it and thought, okay, well, that doesn't apply to me. Daniel, you're the only one here speaking, right? That verse is just for you. Let's move on to the, the next verse, right? But let's look closely at the text and not put too much assumption on it, okay? Just read it for what it says. The one who speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. See, this word speaks is used 
over 100, maybe 200 times in the New Testament, and I counted only three times that it's actually translated as preach. The majority of the use of this word, and as it is here, is for speaking, talking, the one who speaks. So let's do a quick show of hands, okay? Just a little uh, survey here. How many people here in the room can talk? Almost everyone. I think everyone. I think mostly all of us can talk. So this verse is for you. This verse, if you can talk, this verse is for you. We must steward our words carefully, making sure that our speech is reflective of God's words, speaking truth in love. God has made us with a mouth and a vocal box and the ability to speak in a language that other people understand so that we could glorify him with our lips and our tongue. This is the purpose of our speech. Not so that we would lie or manipulate or cheat, but that would we encourage and that we would love and that we would build one another up in the Lord to speak the very oracles of God. This is all of our calling if you can speak. Peter then moves from speaking to the action side of things, the serving. He says, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God provides. So I tricked you a little bit, okay? Because earlier I said, if you can speak, raise your hand. But in the action of raising your hand, you prove to me that you're also physically able to raise your hand, okay? And so now I know that all of you are also capable of serving in an action sense. See, I gotcha, right? See, the question isn't, are we able to serve? The question is, will you be a good steward of what God has given you? That's the question here. Because God has given you a gift uniquely. He has given you a gift and he gives you the strength to use that gift. So many of us say, well, I don't have a gift. Well, yes, you do, actually. The scriptures tell us that you do. Well, I could never, I don't have the time or the strength to do that. Actually, well, maybe not, but God actually will give you the strength to do it. Peter sets it up in such a way here that we literally have zero excuse. And the end of all things is at hand. And the question is, will I serve? Will I use my mouth to praise the Lord? And will I use my hands and my feet to serve each other and the church? So this isn't in my notes, but last night I preached this message, and this is the last point, and I'm ending soon. But right after the, right after the sermon, a young man came up, and uh, you wouldn't notice from him sitting down, but when he stood up and I saw is he, could, he, he was basically crippled and he, very physically disabled and needed help just walking up to the front here. And um, fully there, um, uh, intellectually and mentally, um, but even could barely speak, just couldn't control his body. And he came up and he was asking for prayer. And he said, you know, I, I find it... Um, very, very frustrating. I don't know what my purpose is. I mean, this is coming from someone who can, can hardly speak and can hardly move. And I said to him, I said, Peter, look back at verse 7. Because it says, the end of all things is at hand, so be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And he says, well, what does it mean to be sober-minded? And I said, well, I think it means that we are looking to the end times and we know what's ahead. 
And Peter knew that prayer was the most important thing. And, and for you, maybe the Lord has uniquely made you in such a way that you would be able to dedicate your life to prayer. Maybe that's your calling, that you would pray without ceasing, that your life would be all about prayer because that is the greater work. You can accomplish so much more than all of us who are distracted by being able to move freely. You'll do more work than 99% of the rest of us. And I said, one day, if, if you dedicate your life to prayer to fulfill what God has put you here for, the, the most important work of prayer, Peter, I'm telling you that when we're in heaven and we're in line, I'm going to see you at the front. You see, each of us can serve. God has put you here with all of what you might call limitations or problems. He's put you here with a gift and an ability to serve. The, the, the verse finishes off, and it says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. You see, the end of all things is at hand, so we must pray. We must love one another. We must show hospitality. We must serve. We must serve with what God has given us. Why? Because in, if we do, then God will be glorified. But if we don't, we're foregoing God's glory through Jesus Christ in our lives. That's what's at stake here. We're in an emergency situation. The end of all things is at hand. Will you be sober-minded? Will you be self-controlled and pray? Will you show earnestly love for one another? Will you, will you invite people into your home to show them the gospel because the end of all things is at hand? And, and will you serve with what God has given you and be a good steward of the things that God has uniquely given you to serve one another? I pray that you would. I pray that you would. There are so many places to serve. There are so many things that need to get done while we're here in this church there are so many places that we can serve. I pray that you would. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. Lord, you are so kind to us, Lord. You have poured out a love on us. Those who have accepted Jesus Christ, you've poured out a love on us that the world does not know. So Lord, how can we not pour out this love to others? Oh God, help us, oh Lord. Help us know the urgency, oh Lord, of your coming. Help us understand and grasp that the end of all things is at hand. And this, this truth that you have died and you've paid the price, Lord, that, that propels us to ministry, that propels us to godly living, this truth, oh God, that you are returning and you are coming back and there's so much work to be done. There's so many lost souls to be saved, oh God. Would this truth, would this truth propel us, oh God, into godly living. Lord, that we would pick up the flag of Jesus Christ in our lives and not be distracted by this world. That we would be concerned about the things of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us. Oh, Lord, help us. Would your glory truly be in your church here as we serve you, as we serve one another with the gifts that you have given to us. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.